0: This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now On BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
2: Interesting, uh, interesting research about what Americans fear most. And when you think about it, it's the fears, they're. They're very much about what you can control or can't control, right? So if I can't control something, I might be more inclined to be afraid, to want to fix it. Um, And it's just interesting. Also, the paranormal stuff he was getting into, it was also very, very fascinating, I think, because there's 40% of Americans believe that uh, places can be haunted by spirits. Okay. And more than a fourth, according to the Chapman survey, uh, believe that the living and the dead can communicate with each other. Twenty percent of Americans believe that both aliens visited Earth in the ancient past, and that dreams can foretell the future. Not interesting. One of the surveys, uh, the survey also shed light on certain characteristics of people who believe in the paranormal and ed went over this a little bit he said people with the highest levels of paranormal beliefs have the following traits low levels of church attendance non-white catholic no college degree female unmarried living in the northeast isn't that interesting they I mean like they can target paranormal beliefs that that directly but it's uh it's fascinating in fact um i recently just found Uh, A a really interesting um, article that was talking about a dead woman, so a young woman, died in an accident in China. And there's a a belief, you know, you got to get married. So listen to what happened. Uh, Three people were detained for attempting to sell the corpse of a young woman to be used in a ghost bride ritual. And what they were doing is, the official uh, uh, Xinhua news agency reported that the main suspect, a man aged 72, said he had heard about the death of a young woman in a nearby village in Shanks, Shanxi province and thought of selling the corpse to relatives of a single dead man. So, a single dead man should be married to a single dead woman. And the the price was twenty five thousand yuan, is that how you say that? Four thousand dollars. Anyway, they uh, they were I guess uh the main suspect and two accomplices pretended to be relatives of the woman and negotiated a sale price of four thousand dollars with the buyer And while they were raiding a village tomb for the body last weekend, their plot was scuttled by villagers who caught them in the act and alerted police. The reason behind the ritual is to ward off bad luck, especially with dying while single. And the practice reportedly extends back centuries. It persists in more rural areas, but it still isn't something, uh, you know, it's, it's still a belief system. So one of the reasons your fears may matter, and what uh, we were just learning from Ed Day, is the fact that you might want to start taking some of your traditions, some of your values, or your beliefs, and just evaluating them. You know, basing them on something more modern doesn't make it more accurate, but um, it's try try to understand the theory behind it. Try to dig a little deeper into what's going on instead of just raiding a tomb. Interesting stuff, huh? That's why fears matter. It also those fears, by the way, make it so we see what we want to see, we hear what we want to hear. Many of the arguments that I try to help couples resolve are generally coming out of fear. And uh, if if you want to conquer the conversation, you got to conquer the fear a bit. So also, we could take in a little bit more data, right? Usually, when our, we're talking to our partner, every conversation is not life or death. It doesn't need to be the thing that terrifies you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, a little coach's corner for you here. Isn't it interesting that the the strengths become the weaknesses? So, uh, over evolution of the ma- of the body, we we needed certain traits to survive, and the body learned and. You know, if you were able to survive long enough to procreate and have children, those genes could be handed down. And now look at the curveball we've got because we were able to run and sweat and, you know, rehydrate. Our body started craving salts and water and fluids. Now, all of a sudden, that has turned into, hey, let's go get some fries and a Diet Coke. <laughs> Not good. Or fries and a Coke. And now all of a sudden your brain loves the sugar because it wants as much sugar on board as it can get. Your brain loves the salt. And now we have to deal with it. It used to save our lives. And now we don't need to chase an animal and run and sweat and perspire for hours. So, um, how do we handle it now? Do you know how many times I've had people say, well, I mean, I know I've got this physical problem. I mean, I know it. I know I've been anxious and depressed my entire life. I know it, but I don't want to get medicine. I don't want it. But what you're battling isn't just a weakness. You're battling evolutionary genes that are in you that have made you be a really, uh, maybe tense, anxious person. So you wouldn't get you know, snuck up on by a wild animal or a predator. You have that worry. That's in you. That's not going away. And so, as the good doctor told us, you can either regulate it away, you know, by having more regulation on what we can do, what we can't do, more regulation on our mental health industries, or we could also just, I guess, use behavior change which I have a lot of people want to get over anxiety, but they don't know how and they don't get therapy and they don't read books about it. Or eventually you're going to need to let science in. Somehow we need to break down a little bit, I think, of the belief that science is against us instead of science may be there to be the valuable bridge to, to bridge our, our past and our future. I mean and a lot of the people are God fearing people that, you know, they don't they don't think they need medicine and drugs to fix something. But God also gave you science, right? He also gave you, you know, insight, the ability to learn and to read and to think. He gave you choice and agency. So if we're gonna, you know, invoke. God into the argument about how we handle our evolution and our realities, then let's involve him in everything. There are scientists that are deeply prompted and moved by a God. So let's make choices and let's not do it at the expense of our health. You're listening to the best of the Matt
1: Townsend Show.
2: You know, one of the biggest victims of this new age of information and uh, technology is going to be the relationship, right? Right. And as a relationship coach, uh, I do believe it's something we need to pay close attention to. So it will be today's topic of The Coach's Corner. How do we, how do we close the closeness gap? Many people are struggling um, feeling close to another person. They, they, they feel lonely personally. And, uh, you know, interpersonally, they feel like they just aren't close to their partner, to their kids, Um, it's hard. When everyone's sitting looking at their phones and no one's connecting and talking, you might start to feel like you don't matter, that you are irrelevant. And um, there's – it is a plague, quite honestly, and and yet it's something that we can fix. But like our good guest Andrew Merle was just saying, you might need to make some choices, like the choice to put the phone away. And that's, that's easier said, and I say it, and every time I say it, I notice that I, I still have a hard time putting my phone away because the phone makes it so I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need to talk to anybody. I'm tired. Just once I pull it out, everyone kind of leaves me alone. But some of that then fosters this sense of loneliness. And uh, one of the things – there's a great book out there that I would highly recommend um, uh, called Stop Being Lonely. And it's um, – the Kira Kira, somebody, let me look up her name, but it's – in the book, um, one of the ideas behind the concept of Stop Being Lonely is what we really need to do is start to feel more more of an ability to get to understand the people around us. We really have to kind of step in and get uh, to understand who we are married to, who we are living with. Uh, Kira Asatryan is the author of the book "Stop Being Lonely: Three Simple Steps to Developing Close Relationships and Deep or Close Friendships and Deep Relationships." But one of the interesting things she teaches is uh, don't just assume you understand the person you're with. And I did this yesterday with a, with a couple where I had them identify on a list of positive traits and negative traits. Um, what are their top, you know, eight? you know positive ways that they see themselves and what are some of the negative ways they see themselves that that they in their in their head in their heart of hearts they really they feel this way uh they they and and basically this couple had been arguing about a situation and um we did this activity and then I had them turn to each other and talk about what they found one person's uh one of his top traits was loyalty another person's top trait the female's top trait was um, just just uh, com- compassion and, um, you know, and and just a sense of compassion for others. And what ends up happening is uh, the, the male's negative trait was stubbornness and the female's negative trait was confusion. So what ends up happening in their relationship is a lot of times the the wife is compassionately serving her children while the husband is lonely and loyal and wondering why she isn't more loyal to him. And then they fight. And what was amazing is, is I had him start identifying how they both see themselves and how their partner sees themselves. It changes the entire discussion. He's not being stubborn because he hates her. He's being stubborn because that's just his weakness. And she doesn't get confused about not loving him or loving the kids. I mean that confusion's not coming because she doesn't love him. It's coming because she's so compassionate. She's going to always take care of the one that's in the need. Well, then he has to create a need for her to be able to be compassionate. The power of if you want to be um, more connected to others is you've got to understand where they're coming from from their frame of reference. If they're trying to do something and they want loyalty, you need to understand that. If they want more compassion, you need to understand that. Understanding somebody is the antidote to creating a closer relationship. So a little challenge for you. Put down the phones. Go try to understand each other. Makes sense? We'll take a break. We'll be back for more of the Matt Townsend show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend show. Hey, as promised, we are we're trying to get our, our guest on the line of uh, to talk about what is the new the new principle, the thing you have to know if you're going to deal in a high-tech world, like think about it, back in the day, the number one key to surviving as an employee, uh, you know, may have been hard work. That may have been like the universal principle. Your company's got the ideas. They're the ones that have got the research done, the R&D put together. They've saved your job. And so, You're lucky enough to have a job. Just work hard. Put your head down, and if you work strong and hard, you'll eventually get promoted. You'll make it. You'll succeed. But as times have changed, and now we have innovation, and now, for example, we have the ability to make music on a laptop that can sell on YouTube or can also be sold on iTunes and make somebody a living. Doesn't that describe your son? It describes my son and he can do it all on his laptop or my wife and I can take our iPhone and shoot a video for an election of my son and actually edit the entire thing on our iPhone and have this really incredible high quality one minute commercial for my child's election. All done in the palm of our hand. It's crazy. Did he win? He. we're doing it. We're just oh, okay. barely. It's going to take a month. It's going to take a month. But vote for Britton Townsend, Britton Bobo Townsend. Bobo is a name his friends gave him. That we've never called him by that name until, I, unless I want to embarrass him. But what are the principles of today's day and age? When all of a sudden it can be, you know, it could be the fact that we have artificial intelligence now. You now can um, print anything you want because we have three D printers. What happens in this high, ever-changing, ever-growing, high-tech world, the principle we'll get into, hopefully, if our guest gets on the line with us, is humility. But um, until then, let me give you some other principles of life if you want to be happy, okay? Four principles that I uh, have found. They're not new, and it's not grit, uh, but it might lead to grit. Uh, Four lessons of happy people. If you want to be happy and you – because there's a lot we can teach our kids, right? And we're killing ourselves trying to give them every opportunity in the world. But if I I could just only teach my children four things, these are the four things that, boy, I think in the end are worth all the money in the world. First and foremost, if I could teach my kids to just be self-aware, meaning they could understand how they influence – others, if they could see their strengths, if they understood their weaknesses, if they really were into understanding who they are, if they understood their feelings, had their, their own insights into who they are, their contributions in life, their, their greatest uh, strengths, their greatest weaknesses, if I could teach self-awareness, boy, then I would be ahead of the game. If I had a child that understood what he did well, what he doesn't do so well, and hopefully— Help that child also learn to, to take that self-awareness and develop it into, you know, strength and go be learned and tutored and educated on those things. How cool would that be? Are your children self-aware? Do they understand the impact they have on their friends? Do they understand what their strengths are really? Or do they just kind of shy away from them and don't want to go there? Do they know if, if they're good socially? Do they know if they're good academically? Do they know what, what they're good at academically? Do they know what, they come, what comes natural to them? Are they numbers people? Do they get the numbers? Do they, are they, do they love language? Self-awareness is a powerful, powerful trait. And so if we could teach self-awareness, that helps us understand us. One way to do this is to work with your kids and ask them questions about themselves, like what foods do you really like? Which foods do you notice really that, uh, that don't, don't suit you, that, that aren't good for you, that you eat, and when you eat them, have you noticed what you feel after you eat them? What, uh, what things impact your moods? These are great topics of conversation, things that we could be discussing with our kids. Try to identify from what they're saying about themselves, what do they feel like they do the best? What do they feel when they're out playing on a team? What insecurities do they have? Where do they feel most secure? Where do they feel most at home? How do they impact others? Just conversations. And by the way, allowing a child to feel what they're feeling. If they're sad, don't try to get them to stop feeling sad. Have them talk about their sadness. Figure out where it came from. How did they get to that feeling? Anyway, self-aware is one of the great lessons I think we should all be teaching. Another is that we want to teach our kids to learn to care. How many times have you asked your kid, what do you want for dinner? Like, I don't care. Well, I know you don't, but I need you to kind of (laughs) care. What do you want to do when you grow up? I don't know. I don't care. At some point, caring is, is more than just being nice, right? At some point, learning to care is 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 something bigger than that. Caring is also, it's the great motivator, right? When somebody actually cares about something else or someone else, it actually drives emotion. To care means we know more uh, about ourselves, but we also kind of know what drives us. It's a sense of responsibility. You know, having a dog. As a kid growing up, I cared for my dog, and even though I didn't care for cleaning up after him, because I cared for the dog, I wanted the dog to have the best life, I, I created more motivation. I was more in uh, a connection with this dog because of that. So we've got to teach our kids to care about stuff, to care about their own gears, their own equipment, to care about their own thinking. Some things they, they can care about are their thoughts. We care about thoughts, and we care about our thoughts. We have thoughts that we believe in. We espouse thoughts. We fight for our thinking. We can care about things, you know, our toys, our bikes, our stuff, and we try to preserve the things we care about. We can also care about people, and when I care about people, we end up taking care of people. We listen to people. We serve people. So if we could teach our kids to be self-aware and to care, holy cow. Then we're on to something. We could also teach them to dare, right? To grow, to try to be stronger, to reach out, to risk. And then we could teach them to share, to serve others, to connect, to give of what they have to others. Self-aware, care, share, dare. Basic skills, folks. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Ed Hess will be joining us, talking about uh, the new key Dealing in the smart age Stick with us Powerful principles up next When America and the world entered the industrial age, brute strength became a less important characteristic and being smart became much, much more important. Our next guest argues that with the information age, another characteristic is becoming even more important than just being smart. Uh, You know, you got to be smart and smart in different ways. Uh, to make it through today's day and age, here to explain is Professor and author of the book "Humility Is the New Smart: Rethinking Human Excellence in the Age in the Smart Machine Age" is author Ed Hess. Ed, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Well, thank you, Pat, for having me.
2: This is, um, I think, a, a needed book at this time because we hear we hear over and over all of these new technologies: robots, driverless cars, 3D manufacturing, artificial intelligence. But uh if we're gonna learn all of this or at least learn to adapt to all of this, we need some governing tools, right?
1: That's right. And we're we're on the leading edge of what I call a technology tsunami Matt, which is going to be as disruptive for our society, I believe, as the Industrial Revolution was for our ancestors, because these technologies coming together are going to transform the workplace, and technology is going to move from the factory floor into the office, into the retail shop, into the service places, and be able to do many, many cognitive things that we now as humans have solely in our purview and this change is going to be huge and it's the adaptation human adaptation that you that you mentioned that is so critical in looking at our system our culture and our system We have certain things which will get in the way of our adaptation and our our ability to continuously learn, which is going to be required in this new age. And one of them is the definition of smart, what it means to be smart in our society. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is our our big me culture, which uh, basically rewards, um, (laughs) in effect, the big me, and self-protection, and um, individualism, and social Darwinism. And all of that's going to basically, I believe, going to go out the window in the smart machine age. And it's going to have to go out the window in order for human beings to flourish and thrive. And our book is a book not about technology. It's a book... About a new way of thinking and behaving, how to excel and stay relevant in the smart machine age, which the best estimates and the best research says that, you know, in the next 10 to 15 years, we could have unemployment in this country as high as 50%.
2: Oh, my heavens.
1: And um, and um, the chief economist of the B- of the Bank of England predicted that unemployment at that time in the United States, or basically mm. 80 million jobs in the United States, would be displaced. It's not just a United States problem, it's a global problem. And so this is huge, and we're not prepared. Most people don't know what's coming. They don't understand the skills that uh, humans humans are only going to have jobs by doing the skills that technology can't do well, and that's the higher-order thinking, critical, creative, innovative thinking, in jobs with high emotional engagement with others. And all of those skills require otherness, self-awareness, yeah. connecting to others, a very different mentality instead of social Darwinism's social Maslowism, I call it. Instead of individualism, it's all about team. Instead of about co- competition, it's about collaboration and cooperation. Um, a very... Different model, if you will, that we that sort of dominates now in our society and
2: and yet it almost seems like with these revolutions and um, industrialization as a good example we there's this lagging learning curve it seems like you it sounds like you're trying to get us ahead of the curve, um, but most of the time it seems like we tend to lag behind the curve. is it? is this something we can anticipate enough and prepare enough for that we can ride the wave or is the wave going to crash? People are going to be displaced and then we're going to figure it out.
1: Well, here's my concern, Matt. The displacement has the potential of being so huge that I, it's going to create major social challenges. All right. Yeah. And the change, the change that we need in our education system uh, will take years to basically implement, and what what I'm trying to do with the book, what we're trying to do with the book, if you will, it's like a Paul Revere's riot and instead of the British, it's coming, it's the smart machines. We need to be having conver- conversations in our country as to what we're going to do about these issues vis-à-vis our s- social safety net, vis-à-vis the meaning of work, uh, vis-à-vis training people, and. Um, what the book puts forth is sort of a a model that an individual, that you, me, any individual listening can basically say, okay, what does this mean for me? And it starts with a new definition of smart. And in our culture today, being smart means that, you know, I know a lot.
2: Yeah, intelligence.
1: It's a quantity quantity definition. If you think about who's, who's smart in school, the kids that get the highest grades. Why do they get the highest grades? They don't make mistakes. Well, Under that rule, we're never going to be as smart as technology. Technology will remember no, remember more, know more, process it, remember it perfectly, recall it faster. We can't win trying to be a quantity-based thinker. What we've got to do is go to what I call what we call new smart. New smart is defining ourselves not by how much I know or what I know, but by the quality of my thinking, listening, relating, and collaborating. And if you think about it three of those words immediately mean with others Mm. what's key is is that you know it's you know we need to identify not with our ideas and I'm not talking about anything about values I'm talking about ideas and beliefs not values we got to decouple our beliefs from our ego we can't define ourselves by what we know we got to define ourselves by how we think listen relate and collaborate Be open-minded and treat our beliefs as hypotheses to be tested. Almost think more like a scientist. And all of this, and the big thing is mistakes and failures are learning opportunities because we're all going to have to be expert, iterative learners. It's it's almost going to be like we're going back to the hunter-gatherer days. We're going to be going into new areas because we're constantly going to have to be relearning. Most jobs that people have jobs will will be obsolete within 5 years as technology advances so we're going to have to be expert iterative learners just like we were when children just like when we got on the bicycle to learn to ride a bicycle we we had the courage to try we weren't afraid of falling off and we learned uh, by doing and that's what's going to it's going to take which is going to take Really a transformation of, if you will, of how humans think and, and, what, and how we think about smart. And you get to the word humility. Humility is the gateway to higher-order thinking, to higher-order listening, because when we talk about humility, we're not meaning the dictionary definition. No, we're not talking about meekness or submissiveness or thinking lowly of yourself. It's the psychological construct, having an accurate view of your abilities and achievements, being able to acknowledge your mistakes and what you don't know and your limitations, being open-minded, Okay keeping one ability and accomplishments in perspective and having a low focus on self this whole system that we're talking about to be an expert listener to be an expert thinker to be an expert collaborator you've got to tamp down the ego the big me lens the self protective self defensive our way of you know the that inner chatter in our head uh, which raises our insecurity and our fears and our competition and our comparison to each other—we've got to. We basically got to train our minds to basically think better. We've got to train ourselves to listen better. We've got to train ourselves to work in teams better. And those people that can do that will be much better prepared for what's coming. Mm. Is it,
2: it? And again, it's so counter the last fifty years. You know, where it was more about you, your knowledge, your knowledge base. It, it, but but you're saying this this will be the survival skill yes. professionally.
1: Yes, it will be the survival skill because and the reason I say this is this is what the science says. This is what the science of psychology says as to how we how we think Bas- basically all of us, our natural reflexive way of thinking is to basically process information which confirms what we believe and we basically create cohesive stories to basically go with what we believe. We're basically confirmation machines.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Emotionally, we are naturally reactive, and we def- we're defensive. If our thinking is challenged, we become emotionally defensive. And the whole, whole process is, 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 is that we're emotionally, we seek ego affirmation, and confirmation of what we think. And that basically doesn't lead to open-mindedness. It doesn't lead to learning. It doesn't lead to actively listening. It doesn't lead to actively collaborating. And the science says that I cannot think critically or, or innovatively by myself because mm. I can't overcome my cognitive biases. I need you to help me. And, and people have to get to the point, instead of feeling insecure when their thinking is challenged, they got to feel insecure when their thinking is not challenged.
2: Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. You have to flip the cur- You have to flip the order and, and then um, and be willing to constantly learn and learn and not have your reactive ego, your fight or flight kick in
1: that. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And, Boy. and it's a it's it's a but it's it's a personal journey. All right. It's a personal journey, and in the book we have a, a diagnostic for people to take, where they can see where they are, and then we put forth the best science of training and deliberate practice expertise. How can you train yourself uh, and work on these things and and get better? So you so you can stay relevant. So you can continue to to learn. And it's 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 and it's it really is. Um, a challenging time we 're going into, but we we put out a an aspirational story about a journey to human excellence, with stories of people and processes and especially businesses that that have created cultures that enable this type of of behavior these mindsets and this type of behaving, and so you can actually read and, and hear other people's stories and read the science about it in a very accessible way.
2: It's funny, and um, I've been teaching similar principles for marriage for about fifteen years, and it makes sense in a marriage world where we have to collaborate, not compete, communicate, and and I mean, it is, but it is the it's this humility. to to think of it now moving forward to being your number one life skill, if you want to deal in a smart machine age, and it it will be make or break, it sounds like it's I mean, 50% of, uh, of the people will be unemployed. And a lot of the jobs that we traditionally had our egos wrapped around will easily more easily be done by a machine than anything. So how do we, I guess part of this is noticing the problem. That's part of the humility is noticing the need to start learning.
1: Yes, it's, it's, it's being open to it, and you're, you're, you're quite correct. And what's going to be different this time than the Industrial Revolution is, is that the, the smart machines, um, and especially artificial intelligence, they're going to take over many, many service jobs, and they're going to enter the professions, accounting, law, finance, consulting, um, even medicine somewhat, architecture. Um, um, so that, you know, it's not just going to be, if you will, uh, historically the, the factory worker. It's going to be when you go into the services, retail, fast food, manual labors and construction, you know, truck drivers, accountants, paralegals, telemarketers, security guards. Mm. I mean, it's going to be broad. and And so this... This accepting the fact it's coming and start preparing yourself, your children, okay, your grandchildren, whoever okay, how do we how do we cope and then if we can get this conversation going in the country and people start working on this, then we can have the big social issues as to okay, how are we gonna basically. You know, deal with this as go along. How are we going to retrain people uh, uh, to be able to do to do the jobs that technology can do as technology continues to advance? What are we going to do as a society with? Uh, how do people find dignity? How do people basically help each other in a, you know in effect in in communities? It's going to be a very community, back to community, uh, back to co- uh, collaboration. And you're right. It's, it, it has the chance, I mean, it's going to be very stressful, and it's not going to work equally well, mm. but it has the chance to really uh, transform our society much more into a humanistic uh, environment.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I can totally see how that will happen. Ed, let's take a break, uh, come back and continue discussing your book, Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the Smart Machine Age. More with Edward Hess, Professor of Business Administration at uh, the University of Virginia. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back friends to the Matt Townsend show today we're talking about learning how to be smart and uh, and to do so in the smart age because smart is going to need to be redefined and it's it will include a lot more collaboration, a lot uh, a lot of humility, uh, iteration of, uh, and iterative learning processes, the willingness to be humble enough to know what you don't know. And to know how to go about to, uh, aggregating the accurate information that you need, joining us to talk about it is Edward D. Hess. He's a professor of business administration at, uh, and the Batten Executive in Residence at the Darden Graduate School of Business at the University of Virginia. He spent over 30 years in the business world prior to joining academia. He was a lawyer, an investment banker, a strategy consultant, and an entrepreneur. Ed Hess, thank you again for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me,
2: Matt. So, really, what you're saying is, in the end, this, the skills of like open-mindedness are going to be maybe more important than uh, even the immediate learning you're bringing from your university.
1: That's correct. Um, the mindset, having having an iterative learning mindset, or having developed a, a learning toolbox. Having the tools that are going to allow you to, to be a good lifelong learner and having developed s- specific behaviors, a quiet ego, being able to manage your thinking and manage your emotions, ref- be able to really listen, ref- what I call reflectively listening, and what otherness. <laughs> How you connect and em- relate and emotionally engage with other people in order to build positive regard and trust, mm. and because that type of or those types of trusting relationships are going to be critical to working in teams and to creating uh, creating value uh, for yourself and for society and for your fellow uh, man and woman, for your children, and that. That that concept of otherness is going to be, again, it's going to go against the grain of individualism. And it's this, you know, we're, we're back to caring for one another. We're going to have to basically really work together as a society, as a human race, yeah. in order to basically thrive in an environment where smart technology is doing more and more things and we have more and more Free time, and we have to confront the issue vis-à-vis upward social mobility. What is the American dream in that environment? What's the meaning of work? How do people feel good about themselves? And uh, vis-à-vis, you know, meaning, dignity. Uh, All of these are big concepts, uh, you know, that that go back thousands of years, and. We've sort of been operating on autopilot ever since World War II uh, as a country and uh, going further and further down the road towards individualism and competition and social Darwinism and um, um, me versus you, us versus them. And wow, all of a sudden, technology's going to almost require us to become more humanistic, maybe more moral, maybe more ethical, maybe more... um, people oriented
2: Mm. and and really because it's it almost sounds you know paradoxical right like because you would think that technology would tear us apart and would make us almost less human more autonomic automatic but in reality i guess you're saying it, it, it will probably heighten the human experience and it might become even more it will become even more prized
3: more valuable to us
1: It will be necessary for us as a society to thrive and flourish and for us as individuals because the emotional aspects, the emotional aspects of life will be be those aspects that will be the hardest for technology to replicate. Mm. All right? Yeah. And so, if if you will, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, if you you go back to um, Mr. Spock, you know, where he doesn't like the, you know, humans' illogic and foolish emotions. Well, (laughs) the smart machine age is gonna shatter that because the things that make us unique is is emotional okay is the ability to connect with other humans it's imagination it's to be be with people and find meaning and somehow we got to overlay the economics on top of that if if we're you know if we're in a position of having a significant number of people who uh, don't have work and then even for those people that have work Most people, even today, the Department of Labor says today in the United States, over 40% of the people working are basically independent contractors or entrepreneurs or freelancers or giggers who don't have full-time jobs. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to even be more the norm going forward, because even if you have a full-time job in a company that job is going to change and you're going to find companies moving more to like a tour duty like a military tour right. duty, to four-year term and then you you know you renegotiate and uh, uh, so this whole concept okay how do we as a society you know our education system and our business system was built for the Industrial Revolution mass production mass consumption, efficiency productivity and scale we don't need. A lot of people anymore to build stuff.
4: Mm-hmm. Technology
1: is going to do that. We what we need is is people that are going to be well versed to focus on, if you will, the hard things: emotional intelligence, the creativity, the imagination, and the service to other humans. Okay, elementary school teachers, psychologists, sociologists, home health care workers, physical therapists, uh, coaches. Uh, counselors, all of the people that are involved with helping human beings, most of those people are going to, for the near future, at least as far as we know, are going to be have secure jobs, and then those jobs are going to become very competitive. So even those people have got to take their emotional intelligence and their relating and listening and collaborating skills to a higher level. And we need to start teaching those skills in in our schools. We need to, you know, it's yeah. different than just, it's different. It's, it's well, you know this. You do marriage counseling and you teach it, all right. You understand exactly what, what what I'm talking about because it's that ability to to shut down the self and the defensiveness and the protectiveness to be very open to the reality human reality and the reality in the world, so you be, so you have better data and not to be so defensive, mm. and you define yourself different. It's a quality definition instead of, you know, how much I know we're being right. It's far more important to be accurate than it is to be right.
2: Oh, it's so true. Well, you know what, Ed, I think you're on to it, and I am so excited about the book. I, I think everybody... Where, where we get – it's so easy to be afraid that we don't do anything, but really when you think of uh, this book, Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the Smart Machine Age, maybe it does mean it's time to to get ahead of the curve on this one and um, start teaching our kids, our grandkids what to do and make sure we possess the skills ourselves. Um, Ed Hess, thank you so much for being with us. Again, check out the book, Humility is the New Smart, and do what you can to not just – Not just bemoan it and be angry about it and frustrated. Let's ride the wave. Let's get on it and figure out how to connect better with humans, how to learn and be good at learning and get your confidence from your ability to connect with others and to learn and to grow and to be dynamic instead of your confidence coming from your skill, your one, you know, the trade you've been exercising or the job you have. How interesting is that? The idea that your job could be rotating Every four years, tour, scary. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. We'll come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
0: The Matt
1: Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow
0: Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr.
1: Matt Show. Call the
0: show at one eight five five Chat BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
2: I am a big proponent uh, of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental. Uh, resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's, it's, it's essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24-year-old person gets pregnant historically we'd say you got to marry you got to marry the man marry the man that you know makes it legit now we've got a legitimate thing going on here and then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole and the problem is it's not the reality they're finding they're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic uh, with economic struggles so it it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage now we should probably be pushing well let's not get pregnant right that should be pushed but again because of whatever reasons and accidents or you know things happen that all of a sudden yet yeah, you're pregnant one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one on one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What what is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's these are all important parts of the decision, and. There are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father? What are the, what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out – So, you know, it used to make more sense, and I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in in smaller town, kind of Christian-supported cultures and environments because you had a tight-knit group maybe more around you. But in inner city, difficult, financially strained situations – it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, and if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a in a marriage – um if if that has to happen as well so let me give you some other things we want to blow up a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up um remember I'm a relationship coach I'm a marriage coach I I work with couples every day thousands a year teaching them how to strengthen their marriage I'm not anti-marriage I am a I am a realist though and um to think that it's the answer it, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, there's, it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that?
1: You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show.
2: We got to be real about what, what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the, the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we 're communicating, what we 're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. But <laughs> some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction. But it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first, and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, uh, let's do one more, and then we'll take a break. Um, differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is, not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship just like you know uh, potential I- infections and issues in our environment are better for your Im- for your immunization for your uh, immunology your ability for your immune system to be strengthened you need a resistance right you need to have something fighting against you the same is true in our marriages whenever somebody tells me we never fight i don't think oh they're healthy i immediately think well how is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. We'll take a break, come back, continue this coaching corner, give you a few more myths about marriage that we need to uh really focus and deal with stick with us, folks helping you uh love stronger this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back <music> welcome back everybody to the matt townsend show hey um, Another little uh, myth for you as we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage. Um, we've kind of already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, in your marriage, kids can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one merit myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex. Less sex in your relationship, but according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex as they would rate it than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are uh you know engaging in sex are so much happier but uh forty three percent said that of the singles um. Women who were ages between the ages of twenty five and twenty nine reported having uh, uh fewer uh, sex uh, ha- having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age so that's you know pretty interesting pretty interesting little myth debunked um, Another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's, it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big uh, division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researcher said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less – Uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Our goal is to help you love stronger. I think we accomplished it. We'll be right back. Stick with us for a whole new hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Compared to 10 years ago, Americans are uh, donating less money to charities overall, and the Great Recession was probably the leading cause of this phenomena. But charitable giving has not increased since the economy's picked up a bit. Are Americans being stingier with their money? Here to speak with us today is Jonathan Meir, an associate professor of economics at Texas A&M, who uh, is also the private enterprise research center professor and the director of undergraduate programs there. Uh, Jonathan Meir, thank you for being with us today.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
2: So are we being stingier than with our money than we used to be?
3: Uh, so that's, that's a tricky question. Uh, Overall giving has actually recovered and, and increased a bit. My data go through two thousand and fourteen uh, so they don 't go all the way all the way to present day uh, but the the pattern of results that that I found uh, in a project joint with two undergraduate students in, in our uh, research program, David Miller and Elisa Wolfsberg, was that giving plummeted during the great recession unsurprisingly uh but what was somewhat surprising to us was that the drop didn't seem to be driven by reductions in people's income there seemed to be i don't know if you'd call it something in the air uh but there there was maybe an air of uncertainty that led people to to claw back some of their giving hmm. and uh at least through the end of of the span of time that our data covers that really hadn't come back.
2: The air, so th- this air of uncertainty, it's still kind of looming. It sounds like.
3: Uh, yeah, I think that would be that would be a fair assessment. I don't want to draw uh, too strong of a conclusion from that because it's it's just speculation on my part. But the the thing that I can tell you for sure is that the drop in income uh, or wealth, it by itself doesn't explain most of the drop in overall giving Hmm.
2: now um, but I guess so what I'm hearing too though is overall giving is I guess it's coming back up it's is it just who's doing the giving
3: that may be part of it the data set that we have uh, is called the panel study of income dynamics it's an amazing data set uh, but it certainly doesn't cover foundation giving or corporate giving uh, and being a survey it it unsurprisingly, undersample some of uh, perhaps the wealthiest people whose giving may have come back, uh, may have come back earlier.
2: Hmm. How do do you see uh, American citizens and their giving as opposed to other, you know, donations from other countries and charitable giving
3: in other countries? Uh, so Americans are an incredibly generous people. Giving in the U.S. tends to be much, much higher than giving in other countries. And it's actually the um, cause of a lot of speculation as as to why that is. Um, some might say there's, there's um, c- culture and uh, traditions in the United States that just haven't existed in other countries. I think that's certainly part of it. Uh, we also have... Um, more inducements to give in the tax code as compared to other countries. But even people who don't itemize their taxes and and don't uh, take advantage of those of those indirect subsidies are still really generous. Um, There's also uh, some some thinking that government spending crowds out uh, charitable giving. So, uh, you know, if you if person as, as a citizen feels as if the government is taking care of, say, the hungry, um, then they themselves don't have to make a donation and mm. they um, pull back some of their donation. And likely it's, it's, a, it's a mix of all of those causes. But the upshot is uh, Americans give far, far more on average than uh, than people in other countries. How much do we give on average? Um, so we give about about 2% of, of GDP, which sounds like a small uh, amount until you realize that it's about $330 billion a year. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite a bit of money. Um, now, a good chunk of that comes from corporations and foundations, um, but you, you can see a, a, a grading of generosity all the way through the income distribution from very low-income people all the way through the very wealthy. Is it um
2: do, do these do these i guess go more to religions uh are the donations given to to who who are the charities i mean or is it just every charity we can imagine
3: uh so it does it covers an incredibly broad uh, broad scope religious uh, religious giving in the united states is is quite high um, it's it's again. It's also hard to distinguish between giving to a religious cause um, that we might think of as as a purely religious cause, for example, building a new building um, for one's own one's own um, church, versus giving to religious causes that are themselves social spending, like a church's food pantry. Uh, and and getting that fine a gradation in the data is is quite difficult. Um, but it is, it is a good mix of, uh, of giving. It does vary across the income distribution. So um, lower-income people tend to direct more of their giving towards religious causes. Higher-income people tend to direct a larger proportion of their giving towards um, education and health charities, while still um, giving a fair amount on average to religious causes.
2: In the, in the article you wrote in The Atlantic, you talked about 61% of households reported giving to charities in 2000. With an average gift of about twenty six hundred dollars, is that so? Is that you're saying that number hasn't fully recovered?
3: Um, So that number, so that number is it might be a little misleading because it's it's a it's a mean, so uh, it's an average, so it's uh, skewed by some very large givers in there. Um, But it's it's true from our data. What we find is that um, the average household giving uh, has not really recovered. At least at least through about about. Um, uh, 2012 or so hasn't really recovered uh, to its pre-recession, to its pre-recession peak.
2: Wow. And I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, I guess you have like the Gates Foundation, where all of a sudden the Gates might give billions of dollars, but uh, the average family, we're still struggling, I guess. And, and you, you, I guess, cannot attribute or know what to attribute that to, I guess,
3: directly yeah so it's it is it's it's very tricky to what uh, I would have thought that um income and wealth being um two of the main drivers of of people's capacity to give um that the shock the negative shock to income and wealth in the Great Recession was going to explain a lot of the drop in giving. And it certainly explains some of it. Um, but at an individual household basis, it really doesn't explain nearly as much as, as I expected going into that research project.
2: In your study, do you sense that, um, I mean, because people, I guess, could also donate, uh, you know, other goods, they could donate time. How, how do you account for those donations as well?
3: Uh, that 's a really great question, so um, the the way the question is 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 phrased is it 's asking about donations um, of of money and of in kind goods um, unfortunately they don 't ask as much about volunteering in this survey as I would like them to i 've actually in other research studied the relationship between donations of of money and donations of time volunteering. Um, so I don't know that we actually have any very good, um, reliable estimates of how volunteering has changed over the last decade or so.
2: It's, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what's really happening to us as a country. Um, one of the things I know in my church, in the in the LDS church, we, we donate a tithe, a 10%, but we also donate a lot of time. Do you notice a difference in the demographics behind uh, giving does religious affiliation impact it or what does impact who who is giving
3: so it it varies dramatically of course um religious affiliation does uh does play a role and it of course plays a large role in um in where one directs their giving uh it it'd be kind of unusual for someone who isn't affiliated with religious organization to donate most of mm. their money uh in in that direction um there there certainly are uh <clears throat> there certainly are some patterns um that one sees i i would say most of them are related to um how secure one feels and how tied one feels to their uh to to their community mm. um or to the organizations religious and secular uh to 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 which one is 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 giving in some of my other research uh... i've looked at alumni donations using data from um private uh... research university that we very creatively called anonymous university uh... and the um, Uh, the sort of the the highest correlates of giving, the things that were most predictive of giving, though not necessarily um, causing giving, were how tied you felt to the majority social culture. So were you a member of a social club? Were you a varsity athlete? All the sorts of things that you would imagine would lead you to form a a strong connection with your alma mater. Um, That's not to say that if we took people who were not varsity athletes and force them to be on a team, they they too would feel more generous towards towards that institution. Uh, it's just that people give to to causes with which they feel a connection.
2: Hmm. No, you, and you see that with all of these alumni groups calling you or contacting you, hey, give a donation to to your alumni group. And I'm thinking, I don't even know you anymore. I haven't been there for years. And I had a really bad experience when I was there. Um, it's interesting, you're, you've got to feel somehow tied into the social culture in order to to connect to that. Um, let's do this. Let's, we're speaking with uh, Professor Jonathan Meir. He's an associate professor of economics at Texas A&M. And we're, we are uh, walking through some of his research on Americans and their charitable giving. Interesting numbers and interesting insight in, uh, behind the number. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. Find out about millennials. Uh, millennials are very known for being altruistic and and into many causes are they are they giving of uh of their charitable donations as well we'll get into that plus corporate as well stick with us folks this is the matt townsend show helping you be the good in the world Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are speaking with Professor Jonathan Meir. He's an Associate Professor of Economics at Texas A&M, and we're discussing some of his research that he's been doing on charitable donations and charitable giving over about, I guess, the last, what, 10, 15 years or so. Uh, Jonathan Meir, thank you again for being with us.
3: Again, it's great to be here.
2: This is, um, this is some pretty interesting insights that we're gathering about charitable giving so it in in a way overall the numbers are kind of rebounding who's giving um the the, the average family the average citizen those numbers aren't quite back to where uh they were in uh, in the year 2000 is that right
3: Um just after 2000 so if you, if you recall 2000 2001 was a recession also
2: Right oh that's right 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 So when we look at this um what other what other interesting insights have you seen in charitable giving I guess, demographically, or, or what what might it be telling us about the future?
3: So one thing that I think is is very interesting, one move that I, I think is very interesting and, and particularly appealing to me as an economist is um, this notion of effective altruism, um, this effective altruism movement, which is focused on um, trying to be more rigorous about the impact of one's giving, uh, so <clears throat> so being more concerned with what charities are actually using their money for, and how effective are they uh with with that money now, this is important to distinguish um from this this obsession i'd I'd call it with overhead costs and administrative costs uh which I've on which I've written also uh which again if um if you're cutting your office staff to the bone it's very difficult to be effective if you don't have a good IT person you know it's very difficult to get out in the field and 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 do things and yet we we've had this um I, I'll call it an obsession again with with trying to keep uh overhead costs uh low but effective altruism focuses more on what is the impact of of your programs. And in particular, the effective altruism movement focuses on um, kind of the immediate impact on lives saved and improved.
2: Hmm. Is it? Because, yeah, there was the big issue of only 10% of the money I donate even gets goes directly to the end user of the charity. Um, but you're saying effective altruism is 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 more important than the percentage it's it's what's the actual end user's impact how much is impacting the the actual beneficiary of the charity
3: that's right and and i would say you know if only 10% of the money is being spent on on program activities, and the other ninety percent is is being spent on private jets and parties then <laughs> that is, that is certainly cause for concern but but saying that one charity is better than another because one of them has a eighty five percent spending ratio and the other has a seventy five percent spending ratio um, is I, I would say a, a crude and misleading way uh to pick to pick a charity.
2: Hmm. What do you see just in your research about all of these now charities you you can charities can actually get a percentage of the proceeds on Amazon or they're they're finding more and more creative ways to just take a percentage here or take a percentage there um are you seeing charities getting more creative in their fundraising?
3: Absolutely. And and I'd like to think that uh the, the economics research over the past ten or fifteen years has played some role in that, uh in, in the science of, of philanthropy and charitable fundraising. Um but, you know, it's in my best interest to take credit for it. Uh so you know, you know, the the idea of being able to reduce the frictions for people giving. Um some of my some of my work shows that even very small um uh interferences or difficulties in making a donation can have a really big effect you can imagine you're trying to make a donation to a charity and uh the web page keeps refreshing and you give up after 30 seconds, and you never end up making that um, yeah. donation. So anything that can be done to, to make it easier to, to donate, we saw that after the Haitian earthquake, where people were able to text the Red Cross um, $10 uh, in, a very, in a very sort of easy manner. I think finding creative ways, as you say, to reduce those frictions, whether it's through Amazon or, or clicking through on Facebook or so on, uh, I think is a very fruitful avenue for charities to, to better raise funds. Well, And I
2: wonder if 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 I if I do you know if I check the box and I want my whatever on Amazon to go to a charity, I might feel like I'm giving to a charity, but I might not actually be giving be getting credit for giving to that charity
3: well it, I guess it depends on how you how you're defining credit um, if you're defining it for the purposes of the internal revenue service uh then that that may that right. may very well be true or for your
2: study it. even i'm sorry or even for a study
3: oh for a study yes yeah, so um yeah it's it's uh, uh it's true it may not it may not show up uh, it may not show up as standard giving in uh, um, in, in the sort of research that I do, uh, I, I'd be interested in knowing more uh, how you process, mentally process that donation. Do you feel like um, you've discharged your obligation or, yeah. you know, do, you, do ob- you feel yeah. like you've, you've, done, you've done some good by, uh, by checking a box?
2: Well, and you know what's really interesting, too, is because, for example, uh, if we are cleaning out our closets and we take our clothes uh, to... Uh, goodwill or a local version of goodwill here in utah which is called uh, deseret industries when i drop it off they always ask do you want a receipt for that and interestingly i'm like "Nah, no i'll just take really the benefit of giving instead of trying to go show the irs i did it i wonder how many people are willing to just give and do so anonymously and it seems like the most healthy way to give
3: um, yes, yeah, certainly I think uh, um, every religious tradition, or nearly every religious tradition, pushes anonymous giving as being more meaningful. Um, this is related to a concept um, called warm glow, which, which mm. is a term coined by, uh, by the great economist Jim Andreoni about about 30 years ago, uh, and that, that's the idea that, that people give because it makes them feel good about themselves. Um, which is, of course, you can still feel good about yourself when giving anonymously, but some of those prestige uh, and and kind of signaling to others that you're that you're a generous person, those motivations are stripped out mm. uh, in anonymous giving, and so um, to the extent that that's uh, viewed as a more meaningful uh, donation, you know, um, uh, it very well may be driving some of that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We had um, Professor Sam Samuel Bowles on. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, about moral giving. And one of the things that he talked about is sometimes the inducements themselves may uh, make it so we're no longer just giving altruistically. we're uh, We're giving to get the inducement. And do you think that that impacts our giving?
3: So I, I think that the, the question of how inducements affect giving is a, it's a very fruitful area of research right now, and there's, there's been some great work done um, on intrinsic and extrinsic motivation so if if you're coming in to donate because um, you feel that it's important, it makes you feel good about yourself, and I say, "Great, now here 's your prize for giving. I may actually be stripping out some of your, some of your intrinsic desire. You now feel um, like I 've almost cheapened. Uh, at an extreme i've almost cheapened your your altruism and so maybe you're less likely uh to donate so people have um, have have looked into that question and and there is some evidence to suggest that perhaps these extrinsic uh gifts these external gifts may reduce people's uh people's desire to give um but overall i'd i'd characterize the literature on that question as mixed hmm. and i i think it, it probably depends heavily on on the context uh, on the context of of giving and and uh, um, you know what kind of charity it is and what what type of gift it is. Are you a regular donor? Are you a first time donor? And so on.
2: What what do you think about these new GoFundMe accounts? Um, you know, somebody in the in the neighborhood goes in needs liver surgery or a liver transplant, and the next thing they know that you have a GoFundMe account and it enables me to. Give to the family to help them handle their costs uh, are those being seen as charitable donations as well? How are those viewed and because um, it seems like those are off the chart
3: uh, they they sure are you know they 're so new that i 'm not sure anyone 's really Drilled into them that much. I've done some work with DonorsChoose.org, uh, which connects uh, <clears throat> school teachers with donors yeah. to, to fund to fund projects in their classrooms. It's a, and it's a great, great organization. Um, some of my other work is focused on on this notion of directed giving that people do seem to want to be able to pick the recipients of of their of their. Um, their philanthropy, which things like GoFundMe and donors choose, and some of these other crowdfunding platforms allow you to do um i I think that in you know in some ways it's great again for the reason that it re- reduces it reduces frictions you know if you if you um have someone that you feel as as being worthy of 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 your your altruism um, this makes it very easy for you to donate to them mm. um, on the other hand, you know sometimes we do see. Uh, GoFundMes for kind of, um, uh, we can call them silly reasons, or, or even just, uh, it's not that they're undeserving, it's that, um, you know, their story went viral, and they may not be the most needy people out right. there. And that, that gets us back, of course, to this notion of effective altruism um, is, is the best uh, recipient of your, of your donation, someone who, uh, lives in a wealthy country. And at the end of the day, their, their lives are, are not that tough compared to perhaps someone in sub-Saharan Africa or in Southeast Asia, um, yeah. who is more anonymous, uh, to you because their story doesn't go viral. Um, and it, it also has a much more difficult time, um, getting funding from from individuals like you.
2: This is I mean, it's it's a completely different world where, you know, 50 years ago, I'd take a casserole and I would go talk to the grieving widow, um, you know, of a tragic accident. Now I might not even leave a note. I might just go put some money on a GoFundMe account or a donorschoose.org account or whatever. And. I wonder if it, if it distances us from the end user so much so that we don't derive the benefit of charity.
3: Uh, perhaps you know, but uh, on the flip side, it, it, you can now donate to someone who lives across the state or across the world in a way that you would have never been able to um, to bring a casserole to yeah, them. That's right. Uh, and probably you would have you would have never never really known about them. So I actually think it'd be really interesting to know whether at a very close range, when you're talking about neighbors, um, people in your town, people in your church. Um, whether whether that relationship has been altered, or whether we've really expanded the size of the pie, and now people who are further away have a very easy way in which they can in which they can make a donation and help out. Yeah. Do Do you
2: sense? I mean, what's the impact of social media having on all of this?
3: It It certainly spreads uh, spreads the word uh, quite a bit more. It It again reduces that friction. Um, because you can click through. Um, one of my colleagues in in the Department of Economics here, uh, Reagan Petrie, has done really great work looking at the impact of social networks and um, the idea that it's it's now much easier for with with one click I can reach you know hundreds of people uh, with a with a post and and um, even provide some social pressure on them and say you know hey you're, you're we we are friends, and I'm making air quotes here because we're talking about Facebook friends. Um, but I I can put some pressure on you, um, and at a very large scale for a very low cost, in a manner that I wouldn't have been able to do even 15 years ago. Yeah. spreading the word is easier now. The frictions of giving it's you know you can set up a GoFundMe and just you know click here to give. Um, and i think those those things have become much easier much easier to do do you, do you see
2: anywhere in the research or the data do you see any group and i don't want to you know cast aspersions that just that aren't doing what they used to do that just aren't picking it up like they used to
3: um so i think that there's there's general trends i don't know that there's any particular um group that's that really stands out to me Um, you know, it's, it's, and it's always, it's hard to separate, um, it's hard to separate short and medium term shocks from broader trends. So in some of my other work, I've looked at, at habit formation and giving. And so one concern is, um, if, if you came of age during the great recession, time of uncertainty and lower income, reduced job prospects, charitable giving was probably not very high on your mind. Uh, and so it may be that 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 particular generation may may be less likely to form a habit of giving um and and you know 30 years from now we'll see hey this generation seems to seems to be less generous but i don't want to extrapolate from just a couple of years of data um and say you know well cl- clearly um if you know shake my fist kids these days uh <laughs> you know don't 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 do their part
2: do you sense that the millennials because uh, they're they're they 're known I guess by research I guess to be more altruistic do you do you see it uh, uh you know reaching donations as well charitable donation uh
3: so I do think that it's it's like i said it's certainly easier for that for that generation to to use technology to make donations to use technology to um uh, to find out more about about things, and a lot of the effective altruism movement is driven by by young people in that generation who are saying, you know, I don't just want to cut a check to the same old charity. I don't really know what it's doing. I don't know how effective it is. I want to think very carefully about where my funds are going and what's what's the greatest good um, that my dollar can do. And I think that there's there's a lot of value to that. Um, you know, at the same at the same time, um, there is perhaps some concern about about the moral licensing that uh... that that hashtag slacktivism can give you that, you know, if you repost uh, some article and say, you know, doesn't this make you mad? Um, mentally, in your mental accounting, you may feel like you've done your good deed for the day. Mm. Uh, and, and you don't feel obligated to, uh, to, make, uh, to make a donation. But again, I, I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure it's out there. I'm just, I'm just ignorant of it. Any systematic research that's really looked into, into these particular questions. Yeah,
2: no good stuff. Jonathan, we appreciate you. I really want to have you back to talk about this uh, forming of habits to in, in charitable donations and giving, I think that's a pretty powerful thing. And slacktivism, I got to learn more about that. Uh, how to avoid slacktivism? I guess that's just the the easing of all of us into that. You know, like frogs into a boiling pot. You don't drop them in; you just slowly turn up the water. Then we just slack into it. We'll take a break, my friends, and uh, continue the learning. To become the best people we can become on this greater, Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back.
0: Give it up now for the House of Bows. Welcome to her
2: house. She is McKenna Bows. She is here to break down. Her name down. is McKenna Bows. No, no. That's a good song, McKenna. you got the greatest song in the world.
5: You know, only the best for the best.
2: McKenna Baus uh, is what we call the mind bender. She tries to bring us issues, questions, and anything she can to get us thinking. And today, McKenna, no different. What are we talking about today?
5: So we're talking about whether or not you should go and tell people when you're sick. And- like
2: sick, like I have a cold. I tell everybody when I when I have a cold.
5: I think a lot of us you're talking do, to, like a bigger sickness. A bigger sickness. You, know, you can't stop
2: talking about it. <laughs>
5: something that is going to, th- you know, have you going into surgery, or maybe it's a ah. little more long term, a little more serious.
2: Because you don't want to, you don't want to play the sickly person. Yeah. And if it's if it's a chronic issue, you don't want to have to have everyone constantly, you know,
5: are you okay? bringing it? Yeah. I'll
2: see. I think I would rather just walk away and die.
5: And a lot of people of your generation um, and yes. earlier tend to be um, you know, like-minded in the sense that they tend to be a little more private about yeah. the kind of illnesses and health stuff that they're going through, whereas people of my generation do tend to be slightly more open about it. Right. Um, and so we're sort of looking at the pros and cons of each approach. And That's cool.
2: So what, what do you see? What do you find? I mean, I, I don't want the attention that way. I don't want a, the attention... But then, you know,
5: people want to help. So, you know, there is a little less privacy that you're going to get by telling people. And sometimes when you are going through a sensitive health issue, you really value that privacy. But there's actually a lot of reasons um, that really say you probably should be telling at least more people than you do. Yeah. And so some of the reasons um, with that is the fact that it can simply save your life, whether it comes down to, you know, you need some kind of transplant. The more people you tell, the better, because it makes it that much more likely you're going to find a match. That's right. Or somebody knows somebody who had a similar illness and went through a treatment and you hear about Mm -hmm. something that you weren't going to hear about either. Otherwise, yeah, right, and that makes a huge difference.
2: Well, and support, right? Family support, exactly. Financial support. Sometimes that helps.
5: Yeah, with like the GoFundmes that right. we were talking about earlier, um, that exactly is a big part there. And so, there's definitely a lot of reasons to talk about it. Um, one of the things, though, that they do recommend is doing so, you know, judiciously. Um, you know, po- you, maybe you're going to post some stuff on social media, but maybe post less than you initially think you should. Just like ha- make sure it's out there, but yeah. don't give too much information. Another important thing is to set up what they call sort of a surrogate, somebody who is the gatekeeper on what gets posted online because it can be really overwhelming to have people coming and asking you all the time, how are you doing, right. um, and you having to do the updates. So you have somebody who posts for you. That you have given them strict guidelines saying, this is what you can post about. Mm-hmm. This is what you can't. And you direct the questions where they need to go. You could
2: do a blog, mm-hmm. you know, something that keeps everybody informed. What, so overall, you feel it's, it's a good idea. Share it's, what you can. It is
5: better. Um, and it can oftentimes also give um, people who are ill – a little bit uh, more control a feeling yeah. of control and make yeah. him feel like less of a victim
2: and too, and just I mean I guess the idea that everybody is eventually going to fall ill sometime so having a good mentor or a model that's been through it might help us all as well exactly McKenna Bouse, Bouse in the house. the house she's the mind bounce. bender the house of the house of Bows. great music by the way put together by it's Jeff Simpson we'll take a break my friends come back this is the Matt Townsend Show stick with us it's the
0: house of Baus. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show. Call
0: the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr.
0: Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
2: You know, we just learned a lot about uh, how the breakups impact us. Maybe it's some of those breakups that are keeping people from wanting to move forward and date anyway. I have a lot of clients that come and talk to me and they're like, oh... Is my is my millennial or my young adult ever going to get married? And, you know, as somebody that looks over, you know, a desk every day from a young millennial, the answer to that is obviously no. No, they're not. It's never going to happen. At least this one's not. At least this one's not. Even if you make all the ice cream in the world, Ben, it still may not happen. But a lot of people are like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't want my kid married yet. You know, interesting. Uh, we've had we've had some great guests on recently um, that, of course, you, you don't need to push your kid to get married, but there will be a point where you'll be thinking, seriously, are you ever going to get married? When is this going to happen? So we wanted today to, I wanted to spend a little bit of time in the coach's corner talking about marriage. Mowage and it when you think about it it's not always you know it's it's not always that we we just are choosing not to get married i mean there are a lot of reasons why people aren't dating aren't getting married in fact next hour we'll be we'll be talking to a an expert um who works and coaches with coaches singles and and does everything she can to help them um create a healthier and and i think happier uh happier life. But w- there's there's certain things that have to be there. And and if somebody wants to get married, there's four needs I teach that have to be in play. You 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 got to have you got to want four things while you're dating to create I think some movement. The first one is you got to be you got to want to be in the game. Um and we had uh, a great expert on Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University that talked about Uh, a few uh, a week ago or so about the fact that so many people are missing the market. They're not even in the dating game. They're just not in it. They may have taken themselves out while they're finishing a program. You know, they're finishing their degree. Many people decide that they're not even going to date seriously until they are older, until they have finished school, for example. Or some will say, I'm not going to date seriously till I'm through my first year of law school or until I'm done with medical school or until I've, you know, until I finish this program or this certificate or I'm back from an internship. And the minute you set that that goal in your head that you're not going to do something until then, you may be removing yourself from the game. In the end, you've got to you've got to be available when people are available. And I think a lot of us uh and especially and we're doing them for good reasons. There's a lot of uh, kids that go on LDS missions and they remove themselves for two years to go on an LDS mission and they're not in the dating game for two years. Now, many people would say, well, I know but that's fine, but you'll come back and there's other people to date. Well, except um, a lot of times you date who, you know, and you date your, the people from your cohort, the people from your age group. And when you pull yourself out for an extended period of time from an, an age group and a, and a group of people that you know, you actually might be shrinking or the, the size of the market around you might be shrinking as you're out of the game. And you just assume you can inject yourself back into that market and all of a sudden find your partner. But that may not always be the case. Like uh, Like Brian Willoughby was teaching us, the ideal age for the happiest marriages, believe it or not, are ages 22 to 25. We've talked about other research on the show that said if you got married at 29, you'll you'll be the hap- you'll have a good marriage. But the research shows what you'll have is the least likely marriage to divorce. That doesn't necessarily equate to the happiest marriage. Happiest marriages with the least likely chance of divorcing happen between 22 and 25. And again, if you're planning on – if you're 27 by the time you're deciding to get married, you may be you know, out of the market, out of the game. So there's something going on obviously because people are choosing to get married older. Another reason is simply because they, they don't necessarily have a pro-marriage role model. For example, uh, their parents are sitting there saying, do not get married young. Don't get married young. Get, just wait, wait. Get your degree. Once you've got your degree, so even the parents are pushing, wait to get the degree. But then parents, if you're pushing your children to wait, then you shouldn't be surprised when they do. Make sense? You can't really have it both ways. Yeah, but you didn't know this guy, Matt. This guy was such a loser. You did not know this guy. So if you want to promote marriage in your life with your kids and your young adults, then you've got to be a pro-marriage parent. That might also mean you've got to like being married yourself. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. If your kids see that you hate marriage, that might be another reason why these millennials are saying, I don't know if I want to go there. My mom hates it. My dad can't stand it. If you don't make marriage look appealing, then why would we expect people to do it? So one of the benefits of being a millennial today is you, you've you seen how your parents have handled their lives. So that may be one reason you're choosing not to be in the game is you never had a pro-marriage role model. You never had somebody that saw the benefit or the need or the love of it. Another reason um, that uh, we've talked about recently on the show too is that you got to want it. And there's a big uh, issue with attachment that they're finding out that your ability to attach to another human being – is probably one of the most important skills or tools you've got in your life. Do you feel like, just as you're a listener today, do you feel like you have a really strong ability to connect in and attach in a healthy way to another person? Do you feel like you're healthy about it, or do you feel like you're more desperate for them, needy for them? According to the research, uh, some of the latest research that uh, Dr. Vanita Mehta shared with us a while ago is you've got um, – about uh, since in the last 20 years, since about 1988, that the, the people have become more unhealthily um, attached. So 60% of the people today have an unhealthy ability to attach. They don't attach well, which was weird because 20 years ago, it was about 50% had an attachment issue. Only fifty percent had an attachment issue today, sixty percent have an attachment issue, which means only forty percent of the people in your dating pool have the ability to in, to attach in a healthy way that might be another reason why people are prolonging marriage so and we talked about it, the fact if you if you don't have a strong attachment then some tendencies you'll have one thing is to just simply be you know um, basically not into wanting to get married. You actually are not pro-marriage. You actually, you don't want to marry, A, but you actually don't see a need for it. So you become kind of an anti-marriage evangelist. And if you start becoming somebody that doesn't need marriage, then that will pretty much ensure you're not going to find somebody that's going to want you. Another thing we do is we get preoccupied. If I am not into healthy attachment, then I might get more preoccupied with my life, my business, my work, my degrees. And I think so some of these kids that are just too busy and they're prolonging their their idea of getting married, they just – it's not that they don't see a need for it. They want to get married. It's just going to happen after they're done with school. So imagine that you're dating somebody like that. That's a hard date. Somebody that doesn't – is not anxiously wanting to be with you. Um, And so we'll just wait three more years. Then we cohabitate and that creates other issues uh, as far as marriage stability. Uh, Couples that do cohabitate before aren't happier. They are less likely to get married. They're less likely to, to actually make the relationship work. So. Um, interesting, just interesting stats from the researchers. Um, the other thing that people tend to do if they're not necessarily, uh, able to attach in a healthy way, they tend to fear relationships. And when they fear them, they're not so excited to get into them. And then the last simple rule is some people, uh, just don't know how to date. They don't know how to do it. And they don't have the skills. They don't have the ability. They've never taken a class. They've never read a book and they've never been good at it by just dating on their own. And it creates problems. So, You got to want it. You got to be in the game. You got to have role models that are pro marriage and you got to know how to do it. And if you don't have those things, then it's going to, you're probably going to slow down your path. So, parents, you know, don't just sit there and complain. Sit down and talk to your kids. Is it one of those issues? Are they just not in the game? They're not around people to date. Where do you find a date today if you don't go to a bar? If you're somebody that's not going to go to a bar and drink, Where do you find the date? At work? Well, I'm working. (laughs) And they dissuade us from dating at work. Okay? So you can't find them necessarily at work. And if you're done with school or if you're not going to school, it's hard to find a date. And are are you a great role model, parents? Have you taught your child, you know, the importance of relationships, the importance of marriage, that they're not disposable, that we don't just throw them away? Anyway, just a little uh, coach's corner for you. Instead of worrying about your child eventually getting married, why don't you just talk to them? Find out what's going on in their life and uh, be their coach, be their guide on the side. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Why is it that when somebody asks us to describe our most embarrassing moment, we begin to sort through our brains and to find that moment, and you know what? It it isn't maybe even embarrassing anymore, but it's still pretty funny. What is it about being embarrassed that makes our faces heat up, our hearts pump faster? To help us through this, Jesse Shepard is back with us this morning to talk more about embarrassment and how we can move on from those moments that we try not to talk about. In fact, the moments we try to forget. Jesse, uh, welcome to the show, my friend, Jesse Shepard.
6: Thank you for having me.
2: And Jesse owns um, a, a therapy group, um, Blue Clover.
6: Yes. Blue clover I was going to say blue diamond. That's,
2: <laughs> that's my skiing too, days. Either. Yeah, that's a good one. too. Blue clover therapy here in, in Utah. Now, Jesse, talk to us because everybody, I mean, life means you're going to embarrass. You're Absolutely. going to be embarrassed, right?
6: Absolutely. Well, and the big thing is that we um, get embarrassed and then we think about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Especially right before you go to bed when you should be going to sleep. <laughs> we have that rumination yeah, going over and over. Yeah, your head starts spinning. Yeah. And, and so really, I mean, we're looking to modify our behaviors is usually why we get these shame, guilt, embarrassment of emotions. Uh, but what happens is we sit there and ruminate on it and we never move forward from it.
2: Yeah. yeah. And the reality is most people aren't thinking about Like you go to bed thinking about it, but mm-hmm. no one else is.
6: Oh, we are much harsher on ourselves than other right. people are, are on yeah. us. Yeah. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. <laughs>
2: That's what I, I believe. In the end, everyone's kind of self-centered, right? So these embarrassing moments are embarrassing to us because we're so myopically focused on us. Yes. No one else cares about you.
6: No, for the most part, people, maybe a couple of days they'll remember it, but they move forward yeah. much quicker than we do.
2: But And it'll be a joke. And then, um, I mean, I did things in high school for skits that – I, to this day, remember vividly every part of it.
6: Oh, no. (laughs) But
2: I I was just giving a speech and the person introducing me was somebody that his name was Adam and I played Eve
6: Uh in
2: his – to help him run for a class office. By the way, he won. Nice. Because I was working. It it. was you, yeah. But in the end, I was humiliated. He didn't hardly remember any details about it.
6: Yes, exactly. And you remember it vividly, right? Every
2: part of it. Every part of it. So how do we stop the ruminating? How do we stop the negative thinking, the shame? That we might have.
6: Well, first things first. So, Dr. Linehan came up with this interesting way where we write out the event, and we write it out in as much detail as we possibly can. And the idea behind this is that as we're writing, we slow down the pro- the thinking process, and that way we are able to kind of mull over the details, and our brain can finish the sequence. So, what happens with rumination is that we, like, like let's say you're at a starting line, and we go one, two, yeah. And then, we, but we never finish that process, and so by writing it down, we finish that process and finish the loop, so we can move forward from so,
2: it. So, part of this looping is that we just we haven't brought it to a culmination. We haven't ended it.
6: No, it's, it it just sits there and spins because we can't finish it. We didn't. We never finished the race. Hmm. We just we, – we sit there and we think about the details. We weren't able to complete the task. And then all of that emotion rushes into that and we just can't move over rationally.
2: So give us an example of an embarrassing situation where we ruminate on it. We didn't finish it. But then by writing it down would help us. And how would we write it out?
6: OK. So let's say – OK. For instance, I had a TV segment. Um, and the thumbnail that they used, my face <laughs> was not the one that yeah. I would have chosen.
2: Thumbnail choices <laughs> are never good.
6: No. And um, I actually had Bell's palsy when I was a kid, so I could not move the right side of my face. And that is what that thumbnail looked like. Uh. And it brought up – it rushed – all of that stuff yeah. up. Yeah, And it's very emotional. And so um, I started at the beginning. I started when we figured out that I had Bell's palsy, about the teasing that happened, all of that, all the way up to- this you know me as an adult with Mm -hmm. this thumbnail and having comments on you know social medias sometimes not very kind and um all of these things and and what i was feeling all the emotions and you want to highlight that you want to you want to highlight the irrational piece like what actually happened and then the emotional components of that Hmm. and then as you go through that i mean it was like six pages it was a little silly but I, i by the time i got to the end of it i was like well you know this is not the worst thing. This is – you know, I'm an adult now. Right. You know, I have children, you know, yeah, and that yeah. I have to worry about. And this is not the most important piece. And so it just – you can run through that. And Do you
2: write that down? That Do you write down your insights that now I see that this is not as big of a deal or do you just – process through that. Think through that.
6: Well, the the main component of it is writing down the events. But you want to get to the end and, and have some insight into how important is it right now? How is it going to affect me? Hmm. Because, you know, three days later, no one was talking about
2: yeah, it. Yeah, no one. Yeah. No one's like, even, no one cares your thumbnail on that thing looks horrible. It was
6: silly. Yeah. You know? it, nobody cares at that point. Mm-hmm. By that time, somebody else has done silly. Something and silly.
2: So. Do, do you then write out, so you would write out how you handled it, how you're going to handle it, and how no one in the future will even care about it
6: exactly and and you know i cannot control the thumbnails yeah you know they right. come up so that's just the way it is and i actually it, it's a nice thing to maybe burn it or rip it up yeah um just to be like okay i'm gonna wash my hands of this there's mm-hmm. no no reason i need to continue to mold this over so
2: you you could then print the document and if you need to you could burn it yes shred it I had a lady take out her gun and shoot the crud out of it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Seems a little violent, I but love it. it worked really well. I love it. it worked really you well. You could
6: tie it to a balloon, even uh-huh. you just that Let releasing go. process. It, it's it, it's a symbolic thing, but it kind of it takes away that burden. Yeah, and that's what we're looking for.
2: Do some people are some people more prone to to get stuck on embarrassment than others?
6: Um, you know, people who, people who tend to think. A lot about their behaviors do tend to get, hold on to those. So, introspective moments. people. Yes, will spend a lot more time mulling over their actions. People who are kind of driven and, and goal oriented and are kind of like, oh, well, I have to get on to my next task, yeah. don't tend to mull those things over as much. I don't know which is better or worse. Um, necessarily, because the ones who are thinking a lot about their behaviors can modify their behaviors yeah. and really set good goals and know themselves really well. Whereas those who are just always moving forward sometimes are not paying attention to the moment. So, um, but yes, if you spend more time thinking about your behaviors in general, you're more likely to have that rumination of embarrassment.
2: But I guess too, the brain wants to hang on to these embarrassing moments. They want the brain wants you to not let this happen again because this is yes. socially devastating.
6: Yes. Yeah. And well, and that's really where that comes from. We want to fit into the social structure. And so we pay attention to what others are doing. And if we see a behavior that's not quite right, we note that in our brain and go, okay, I don't want to do that. Hmm. So the second that we do something like that, whether it's in our control or not, um, it takes us out of our, you know, feeling... Like we're into the social structure that we belong. And so by you know having those things happen, we, we really are hard on ourselves because we're like, oh, now we don't fit in. In all actuality, everybody gets embarrassed. Everybody does silly kind of dumb things once in a while.
2: And it's because I, it's always weird for me. I just did a segment on this on a show, a television show that – we, we kind of want to get rid of our thoughts, but it almost – it takes energy to have a thought and to keep a thought. It also takes energy to get rid of the thought, which is why you're asking us to write it down. Yes. The, exertion of, the exertion of energy helps us get the idea out, but it also exhausts the energy around the thought.
6: Exactly. And, and it – again, it closes that loop. It closes it. It makes it so there's a – finality to that Mm -hmm. that moment that we had.
2: Does the the moment, the closure of the thought have to be real or can it be imagined?
6: What do you mean by that? Like
2: could I take an embarrassing moment and fictitiously turn it into something else?
6: Fictitiously
2: Uh, turn it into something else? Like it didn't – nobody laughed but in fact they just thought I was the funniest guy in the world.
6: Yeah. I mean if – you know – Okay, so it's however you can pitch it to yourself.
2: Whatever myself will buy.
6: Exactly. Because you might have done something and I I tend to go like, well, you know, other people have done this. And now if somebody else has that happen to them, they can look back at me and go, oh, my goodness. It's happened to somebody else. At least, yeah. Yeah, so whatever way you can kind of convince yourself and make you feel better about it is wonderful.
2: Yeah. Is it – I guess I sit there and I see – I mean embarrassment – It does. It seems like it goes back to for all of us, back to our childhood, back to these moments where we, you know, the light was the spotlight, was was shined on us and we were in a place where we didn't want to be.
6: Yeah, middle school.
2: Does how much of that, how much of the childhood? I mean, because it seems like we probably have left a lot of stories untied. Yes. And unfinished.
6: And so when we're little, we tend to be egocentric completely. We don't notice those things. We're just going through life and loving it. Right. But then as we realize that we want to belong, that we want to be part of the social structure, um, that is when we really start to find those embarrassing moments. And for instance, I mean, like sixth grade, middle school Mm. is a very awkward time. We don't know who we are. We don't we don't um, there's there's not a lot of identity that we've we've grasped onto and so we're just trying to fit in we just want to belong and so as we're doing things that are kind of awkward because everybody has those awkward moments we go oh man that will not be accepted and um so yes, we hang on to those things. And that's why it's important to write these things down. If if you are triggered by something, like when you're going to college and you recall something in middle school that makes you feel really awkward or mm. uncomfortable, go ahead and write that down. There's nothing wrong with that. Even if it's you know so many years in the past and you think, well, that shouldn't affect me. Those things do affect us. And so closing those loops is very important.
2: And you can go back, I guess. There's no expiration date. If you're still thinking about it, as a devastatingly embarrassing moment, mm-hmm. then you can probably go create closure.
6: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And so it's it. it that's the thing we we look at events and we go, well, n- nobody would be embarrassed about that anymore. I should not be embarrassed. Yeah, anymore. it absolutely does not matter what the event is. It's your perspective and what your what emotions you're hanging on to.
2: Powerful. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Jesse Shepard. She is uh, she owns Blue Clo- Blue Clover Therapy. And if you go to BlueCloverTherapy.com, you can find out more information about her work there. We'll come back, continue this discussion about why we shouldn't be afraid of our embarrassing moments. In fact, maybe there's a way to to utilize them to our advantage, right? To to help them, utilize them to help us learn, to grow, to become the best people we can become. Stick with us. More with Jesse when we come back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little uh, embarrassment beating you up. You just can't let go of that thing you did at the party. Oh, boy. You'll never get over it. Well, joining us is Jesse Shepard. Jesse is has a master's degree in mental health counseling and uh, is the owner of Blue Clover Therapy in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today she's walking us through how to get through our embarrassing moments, how to move on from those. So far she's taught us, uh, A, they're important. Don't – I mean just recognize. But also um, you can – one thing you need to do is finish the story about the embarrassing moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, like write an ending to it so you know we know how it closed out.
6: Yes. Yeah, you want to be able to, to complete that that that. structure and get all the details out all the emotion
2: so what do we what can i do i guess as a parent to help um my kids when they come to me with an embarrassing moment my tendency is like oh it's not a big deal relax breathe move on
6: well and when we do that as parents because that's our natural reaction be like ah, it's not a big deal right um that devalues their experience It takes away from the, I mean, because those emotions are completely real. right. You know, and it can be absolutely humiliating. And you, more than likely, were not there as a parent. So you don't know what happened or how other people... You know, reacted to the right. embarrassing moment, and so the big thing with that is not to devalue the emotions, but to first off help them process through. So have them tell you it in in all the details.
2: Give me the details, and mm-hmm. you want to, you want as much of the story as you can get out of them.
6: Yes, all of the what they felt. That's a big one that kids tend to leave out. Where it's like, okay, well, I was walking down the hallway and I spilled water on my lap, and it looked like I peed my pants. Yeah. and like it's like the the mechanism behind right. it. Right,
2: there's the detail. There's yeah. the
6: detail. But I want to know the emotion. Component of it was the girl that you like, you know, standing right in her there. locker and saw. Yeah. Did, you know, did your you know did your face flush? You know, did you shake? What were you think? You know, what were what was going on? Um, you want all of that, yeah. And by telling the story, by by divulging all of these terrible things to you, um, they are creating camaraderie with you, and together you guys are are a team, and you're creating that social structure that they are safe in. Hmm. So you have your you know day-to-day going to school type social structure, but you also have your inner family. And so if they can come home and feel comfortable to be like, this is what happened and it was terrible, yeah, then it really makes it where they belong someplace. So no matter how embarrassing everything was out in the world, they can come home to their safe spot and have that conversation with you and feel safe and comfortable. And it does comfort and remove some of that embarrassment.
2: Well, and because – We we as parents might feel uneasy about their lack of ease. Yes. Right? So we we want them to get over it. Like, it's fine. You're fine. Just – It's good. Move on.
6: Yeah. It's very uncomfortable for parents to see whether they're being bullied, whether they experience something embarrassing. Um, Any type of distress at all is very difficult for us. And oftentimes we do not have control over that. We can't be on the playground with them. We can't go to school with them. And so to have them have to experience that without us to kind of walk them through it Uh is so uncomfortable for us. And so that's why we want them to feel like they can come and talk with us and, and feel safe And um, that way you can give them tools so when they go out in the world, they can feel okay about it.
2: Amazingly, what that really is, that's the therapeutic side of this, right? So the benefit of a therapist is that they're an informed listener Mm -hmm. that knows how to kind of prompt us through our stories. And that's what creates, it sounds like, a lot of the therapy. Mm -hmm. But as a parent, to some degree, we could be therapeutic as well by allowing our kids to tell the whole story share the emotion of it and safely receive it.
6: Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing with a therapist or a parent, really the the other person is doing all the work. Yeah. We are just there to help guide them and to help them process through it rationally and emotionally. Yeah. And then get skills so that when if it when and if it happens again, they are able to cope.
2: Well, like it also seems valuable cuz the child in that moment because of their embarrassment, they don't necessarily pick up all of the data. Mhm. Like they don't notice how many people didn't look (laughs) and see that or think. And they only saw the two that did. Yeah. And then they it sounds like they probably embellish it and make it bigger than it is. Mm -hmm. But like so would it also be valuable to find out like have them tell you other data. So then what did you do like Mm -hmm. then? Well, I went to my next class and well, what happened in the next class? Yeah. Well, I just covered it with my backpack and then I sat down and then it just dried during class.
6: Yeah, and then, you know, was it mentioned throughout yeah, the Yeah, did anyone of the day? mention no, it? No, no. no. And and I'm also bringing up. Well, has that ever happened to anybody that you know, like any friends yeah. or anything? And then s- having them see that from that person's another perspective. perspective, yeah, yeah. Because then, like, oh well, no, it wasn't a big deal, you know. And they're like, oh well, I bet it wasn't a big deal for you either. Right. So you know, that's okay.
2: So even if you're pro- letting them process it, but you're gathering as much data as you can. I guess their brain will more naturally start. You don't even need to tell them it's not a big deal. No, you just let them process through, and then their brain will say yes, yeah, okay. Yeah. This isn't as big of a deal as I was thinking.
6: Well, and, and that's the thing. Like if we tell our clients or if we tell our kids something, they will not believe us.
2: That, that's motivation theory, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. if, if it's coming from me, you're not going to believe it. But if you find the idea yourself.
6: Yes. You're, so you just want to slowly nudge them in the right direction. Yeah. And then they find their way on their own.
2: That's so cool. But you you also can't be condescending or cross-examining. Well, isn't it true that only two people in the hallway saw you? (laughs) No, because (laughs) it
6: takes away from that emotion. We can't devalue them Let them tell the story. Yeah. It's their perspective. Nobody else's.
2: Yeah. So during the class, were you thinking about your pants drying the whole time? And what did you finally feel when you noticed they were dry? How did that change? What did you feel then? Because then people will naturally heal.
6: Oh, absolutely! It's
2: just we've got to give them a space.
6: Yes, and that's and then it, huh? Giving them skills so that when they have to go to school tomorrow and yeah. go walk down that same hallway, right. That they, you know, can okay. I'm going to take deep breaths when I walk through. Totally. I'm not going to make eye contact because I'm scared. of I'm yeah. seeing my girlfriend, or you know, that kind of thing. So. But
2: I guess is that the problem then, like with an embarrassing moment versus other moments, is we we try to we try to keep it secretive, yeah. so that then begets shame and. Yeah, we, you know, it's not healthy.
6: No, we don't want to hide it at all. And and that's the thing. Have you ever met someone who cannot be embarrassed?
2: Oh, yeah. 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 And
6: usually they're the ones to point out what they've done and to oh, make yeah. fun of what they're doing, you know? And so it, if you just like say it, then people are like, oh my gosh, like yeah. it's hilarious. You yeah. know, I can't believe that happened to you. And then they move on. Yeah. You know, it's,
2: it's funny because I pretend to be that guy and then I tell embarrassing stories,
5: mm-hmm. which
2: I feel okay telling because they're mine. But then when someone comes up and calls me by the same name that I was calling myself,
5: uh-huh.
2: I'm like, yeah, you don't have the right to call me that. It's like, <laughs> yeah.
6: hey, you were, you know, you this is me. That. I can say that. Well, it's the same thing with that thumbnail. Like, I I can joke about it, but right. it took a second for me to, yeah. <laughs> to be like, okay, it's okay. Yeah.
2: <laughs> What's wrong with your face in that thumbnail? That's so rude for you. Yeah. That is so devastating, isn't yeah. it?
6: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, Talk to us. Another tool you, you've got is visualization. How can we visualize ourselves out of the embarrassing paradigm?
6: So when we get embarrassed, we tend to get hyper aroused. We Our cheeks flush. We, our heart rate goes up. We breathe heavier, right? Yeah. So um, what you want to do is you want to get into kind of a nice calming state, meditative state, um, maybe be sitting for a little bit, doing some breathing, that kind of thing. And then you go through the event As you went through the event from your view and you try to imagine it in as much detail as possible all the way to the end where there was a a completion of, you know, uh, where your pants dried or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, And then you start over with the event only instead of being the actor, you become the director and you are watching yourself go through this moment. Hmm. So you could see everything. You could see the environment. You could see, you know, what your face looks like, what's going on in the entire event. And by doing this, you, and you complete the, the entire scene, all the way back to your pants drying. Right. Um, and by doing this, uh, first off, we are not as harsh on our on other people as we are on ourselves. And so you give yourself a little empathy by turning into the person who's witnessing this. And so just the same as if I witness somebody do something embarrassing, I really don't think about it for very long. Right. Um, I might comment on it if they're my friend or something, but really, for the most part, I, I get over it. And it takes that same concept with that event. So you go through the event, you process it, you go through the emotion, you have empathy for yourself because most of the time embarrassing things that people do are completely normal things. That we're doing. And it's it, so it strips away that emotion, and you're able to look at it. You're still going to remember the event. But then it is seen as somebody else going through that, and you have compassion for yourself. Hmm. Yeah. Which is hard to do. No,
2: but that's healing.
6: That's healing, exactly.
2: And I, I remember doing that. Um, I was watching, I remember vividly, it was a college class on public speaking. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was about to do a speech on the Titanic. Oh, wow. It was really powerful. Mm-hmm. and But I remember watching a, a young woman go before me and she started to have a, a break breakout in hives. Oh,
6: wow. Yeah. And her
2: mouth was dry and she – I honestly thought she was going to die. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching that thinking, does my face do that? And But as, an, as a third person watching her, having such compassion and seeing that hyper uh, arousal state in her going off mm-hmm. – I then rushed – no, I then was told to do my speech. So I did my speech and after my speech, I ran right to the bathroom mm-hmm. to look in the mirror
6: because
2: yeah. I wanted to see if I was flushed, if I was – and I, I had this weird dawning that's like, no. But I felt what I think she was feeling Yeah, but my body wasn't manifesting it that way. And I remember gaining confidence in that moment that I can sense what she's going through but I don't have that. Yes. I so I I'm feeling what everyone else feels that terror but it doesn't manifest in me that way. Yeah. And it gave me just that little bit of self-awareness, gave me confidence that I can handle this.
6: Yeah, exactly. And it I mean, even the, the woman who broke broken the hives, yeah. we all, you would have empathy for her. Totally. Because we have been there. Totally. We sat and yeah. had to do a speech in front of yeah. you know a group of people. And we're like, oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. We all have that that um, those emotions. And so we can empathize with that. Um, but by you realizing that, oh, I can get through this without getting hives uh-huh. and all of that, that builds um, self-confidence. And that's really what we need to work on. Um, like if we have a hard time, Speaking in public, we Mm -hmm. need to speak in public. That's right. You know, because the more you do it, the more comfortable you will feel and be like, yeah, I got this. And you start to
2: control those responses. And I I realize that the more I have empathy for another, the more I can have empathy for myself because I I get more and more versions. Absolutely. I also – the more I know myself, the more I can empathize with another.
6: Yes. So the more that you are aware, the calmer you can be – like – you know, radio and TV segments. Right. Before, they would make me just completely break out in high. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: maybe you were that girl.
6: I know, maybe. <laughs> but um, now it's, you know, I still you still get a little anxious. Yeah, because, sure. I mean, what it is. But going, oh, you know, I can handle this. And then, you know, if somebody else, if the next guest is hyperventilating, you're like, hey – we can do this. We can do this. We got yeah, this. Deep yeah, deep breathing. This is what Absolutely. I. This is what I figured out for me. And you're going to do this, and you're going to do fantastic. Yeah. And it's gaining that confidence in doing it. So.
2: So when you think about it, give us the one thing. What's the one thing that we could do today? You've taught us to write to finish the story. You've taught us to visualize and see it from a third person alternative or perspective. What What's the uh, What's the, what's the one thing you think would make the biggest difference for all of us to manage the emotion today?
6: To manage the emotion. So we want to be kind to ourselves. We want to take the time to go, okay, is this really as bad as I think it is? And really process it. Use these three tools, but really be kind to yourself. And that's really what it comes down to. It
2: comes down to, yeah, don't beat yourself up, yeah. but be productive. Write about it. Visualize it. Yeah. And, and then show some compassion to yourself. Exactly. Beautiful stuff. Jessie <laughs> Shepherd's her name. Go check out her website, blueclovertherapy.com, blueclovertherapy.com. You get the latest and greatest there. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break when we come back. Caitlin Thomas will be joining us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Many of the actors and actresses that we watch on TV have been starring in movies and television shows since they were just young kids. How does this affect them? Is starting kids young the best way to help them build a future of fame? Caitlin Thomas is here to talk to us more about some famous child stars and how their careers have played out. Hello, Caitlin. Hello. What's wrong with your voice?
4: I'm a little sick today. It's okay. We're going to get through this. You're like
2: Shirley Temple with a bunch of... (laughs) Marlboro's
0: on. With a little bit of
2: Michael Jackson in there,
0: too. Yeah.
4: Oh, Bubbles, where you at? (laughs) Hey, no, that's rude. Ah.
2: So so child stars,
0: I mean,
4: a lot of
2: stories don't turn out pretty when they start young. Right.
4: Well, I was watching you, my favorite show, The Voice. It's one of my favorites. Is that your favorite
2: show, really? One of my favorites. Okay.
4: And they put a 13-year-old through.
5: Wow. It's the youngest
4: they've ever had. That's young. It's young. And I was like, I don't know how good this is for this kid, like... I feel like if he doesn't win, he's going to get his dreams crushed. Like, yeah. what effect could this have?
2: But it could be Justin Bieber. Kid?
4: But, like, look what happened to Justin Bieber when he hit, like, 17.
2: Yeah. Poor you know? Guy.
4: So that got me thinking, like, how effective is it to start young? Is it better to start young? Is it better to wait for your kids before you throw them into commercials? Well, and... as
2: somebody that's old, uh, I would start younger.
4: Like, but, like, what, how, what young is young? I don't know. Like so I I was thinking of like then and now, like child stars, Drew Barrymore. Yeah. E. T. Right? She's yeah. so cute. She was went to rehab at thirteen. Yeah, she
2: had a hard time.
4: A rough time. And and I mean she's great now, as far as I know. Like she seems to be doing really well and whatever. But I mean she got a, a couple of years there, thirteen that's rehab. what you that's... get
0: when your mom takes you to bars when you're a little kid. It's yeah. Just sad. That's a good point.
4: What about Raven Simone? You know that's yeah. so Raven?
2: Yeah cute little
0: raven
4: so cute
2: what's wrong with her what's she's fine she's She's healthy she's
4: fine
2: but see so some make it through i wonder if a lot of this is just family influence that kind of incubate them i think i would make my kids you know i'd I'd try to not have them living in a trailer and having limo rides everywhere i'd i'd make them go to school still aren't there famous people uh that are still at Harvard or isn't there a, a an actress that still goes to Harvard or Yale? I mean, I,
4: yeah, I know that like Emma Watson did. Emma Watson. She went to Brown.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd make him like, go to school.
4: She still did. Um, I think of Amanda Bynzo. She was one of my favorites growing up as a kid. She did some really good ones and she did pretty well, I think, through her teenage years but then, you know, went to adulthood and started, you know, talking about accusations of, you know, abuse, this, that, or the other and then she kind of had a mental breakdown but then she went and got some
2: she was, like, lighting cares. fires on people's driveways or something? Know. Yeah. But see, again, I wonder, too, some of these people may have mental health issues that are not identified Until or dealt with when they're younger because they're stars, right? Right. Because they're the moneymaker. So people don't tell them. I have a lot of athletes that are really well-known athletes that I work with, and they, a lot of them have never been told no in their life.
4: Yeah, that's a problem.
2: So then, you know, that's probably part of the problem with being a star is no one says no.
4: And you just kind of, when you have fans, you have people that adore you all the time? Well, like, what happens
2: when your parents are making money on you and that's sustaining the family and they're your manager?
0: Ugh,
2: it yeah. causes a lot of parent-child fights. Macaulay Culkin, didn't he argue with and his you parents get about money? Yeah, then you got to go for emancipation.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, how young is too young, Dr. Matt?
2: I kind of... I think it depends on the kid, quite really, quite honestly. I have a son that is pretty talented, but he's... And he had a lot of really good things happen to him young. Hmm. But he then would come home and could care less. So he didn't get Matt, sucked into Matt it. I kept him humble. Well, no, I really didn't. It's just he really was... He, was at an, he, he, he wasn't going to be moved by fame. Hmm. Fame just actually induced more stress for him. <laughs> or not even fame. He's not famous, but notoriety. So... I guess you have to know your kid. That's the problem.
4: Because I think about, like, Lindsay Lohan. She was so cute.
2: Yeah, super talented. was
4: really talented. But so it's like this fine line between, you know, my 13-year-old's really talented at singing. Obviously, he turned three chairs on The Voice. Yeah. But is this going to expose him to a world that's more mature than him and he's too young? I don't know.
2: And it dissipates. I have uh, friends that have been on American Idol and been in the top 13, 14 on American Idol. And it gave them a big boost, Mm -hmm. but they're just as normal as they come now.
0: When I was younger, my friends recognized that I didn't go around swearing and doing all these bad things, so they thought it was amusing to try to get me to say some of these swear words, Hmm. and I know that for a lot of these kids, you know, they get backstage and there are people that are older than than them, offering them things that they should not be consuming, just because it's amusing, Mm -hmm. or they want them to feel included, or maybe they have issues themselves. It's an
4: adult world. It is. It totally is. Hollywood... That industry—it's an adult—it's adult world. Be just be careful. Maybe
2: that's part of the rule: is we got to take better care of these kids, right? And not just a
4: lot that goes on backstage. They have a
2: lot of rules for them, I'm sure, like how they can work, how much they can work, how they can't. But it almost seems like what they need is more of not just even the parents, but even counselors that
5: help them. Help them process.
2: I mean, what does fame mean when you're when you're five or six or seven and you're famous for something? That's a big deal. Right? Yeah, their that's brains probably going to
4: develop differently. I would imagine. Oh yeah,
2: you're going to develop a really huge fame frontal lobe. So, I think they call it.
4: Just really praying that the voice does not ruin this poor kid. His name's Quiz. 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 So well, he already has. Like, well, I a name. think
2: just the name right there. You know, that's pretty much. He's going to. He's going to be a quiz question on Jeopardy someday <laughs> in the future. <laughs> quiz question. Quiz. No, it's great insight, interesting insight. And by the way, just as much, just as important to the rest of us to not be sideline parents screaming at our children Mm -hmm. for not scoring the touchdown, or dance moms that are from the devil.
4: There are some crazy dance moms that try and start their kids, like five and six, putting them on these teams, and they're
2: not even famous.
4: No, I mean in the dance world, they might be.
2: No. And go work on that voice. I mean, not that it's bad, it's just I feel bad. You feel like I feel like you're suffering.
4: Yeah, I should probably be in bed, but I have a midterm.
2: Can you just say mm. Jamon for us?
4: I'm not here to that entertain voice? you, Jeff.
2: Just one. Just Jam-on. one. Just one.
4: What? Jamon?
2: That's good. As Michael Jackson would say. <sighs> Thank you, Michael. I uh, appreciate Michael Jackson visiting yeah. us today. Yeah. Talking about Speaking child, of child stars. stars Well done, Caitlin. We'll take a break, friends. We'll be back. Stick with us.